Pastor John, if I haven't got to meet you, I would love to do so after the service. I'm our associate pastor here. We've been going through the book of Luke, and today's sermon is going to be a little bit of a departure from kind of what we've been used to for the last uh, few months here. We're going to do a number of sermons on the resurrection. And so I'm going to focus on one aspect. Joe's going to focus on a couple others here over the next few weeks. So we are going to start in Luke 24, um, Luke 24, 1 through 8. But we're not going to end there. We're going to go to another passage and spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians. We're actually going to do something very similar even next week. But we're going to go to Luke 24, 1 through 12. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's some black Bibles in the chair pockets there. And you can go to page 884 on that Bible. As you're opening up there, um, I want you to just think about something for me. Dumb illustration, I know, but just just bear with me. Uh, my kids have just finished up soccer. They have loved it. Both my kiddos played that. Emma played her first semester and she loved it. I know we've got some others who played their first semester in soccer and had a great time, did awesome. But kids soccer is an interesting thing. All right. So in practice, the goal of kids soccer is be able to kick the ball, not fall down and don't take the ball from your other own team. Like if you get that done in practice and you can teach that, we, we are in great shape. And then the game, it's it's go the right direction and, you know, aim generally at the goal. If you can do that, you win in kids' soccer and are fast and run run hard. But if we got the kids out there and we got them all, and I mean, they got to do the works. You got cleats, shin guards. They actually do, in Nolensville Rec League, I love it because they actually do like real looking soccer uniforms. I mean, they're, they're serious football uniforms. They've got, you know, the, the cool fabric and the, the multiple stripes on the, they look great. These kids look like real soccer players out there. And uh, they go out there. We've got refs out there, the older kiddos ref for the younger ones. I mean, they're, they've got the uniform, the whistles, the works. They line the field. They're actually nice and they're better than my yard. Nice fields. And the kids got out there. We lined them all up. They did the inspections to make sure they had all their equipment right. They told them to run around, get warmed up, and they never brought the ball out. It wouldn't be soccer. Right. I mean, it might be healthy. They might learn something. The kids would make something fun out of it. You know that. But but it would not be soccer if they never brought the soccer ball out. When we come to the resurrection, it is not Christianity. If we do not talk about believe in and are aware that Jesus Christ rose up from the dead. It's like trying to play soccer without a soccer ball. It doesn't even make sense. It's not soccer without the ball. And it is not Christianity without Jesus Christ raising from the dead. And so today, I want us to read out of Luke chapter 24. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 and read some others the next couple of weeks. So today, the, the kind of goal, the big picture here is what is the big deal about resurrection? What did Jesus' resurrection do? What is the point? Jesus is, is God. God is spirit. So why did he need to have a resurrected body? Uh, what is the point of all of this? So we're going to start in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Again, page 884 if you need that. And again, if you don't have a Bible or, or you don't have a Bible you can read, it's not one that's understandable to you, please take that. It's our gift to you. Uh, Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, 
They went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. These are the ladies who were following Christ. They, uh, they were the brave ones who actually went to see Jesus. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Most historians say that stone probably weighed three tons. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while you were still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now is Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed like an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had just happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is core to Christianity. But, but the basic facts even of the resurrection are amazing in and of themselves. Jesus' body was placed in a tomb carved out of stone. They, they literally, this wasn't a natural cave. It says it was hewn out of stone. And one of the traditions of the rich, by the way, there were probably only three or four of these types of graves in all of Jerusalem. This was a very rich man's grave was to roll a giant stone because this wasn't a tomb for one person, but for an entire family. And so they would roll this stone, which eventually could be moved to add to that family tomb. They say these stones weighed, again, about three tons. And uh, we, we've been doing some brickwork at my house. We moved one ton of brick. Let me tell you, that doesn't move easy. Uh, when you hear the expression, it'll hit you like a ton of bricks. It does not do justice till you've moved a ton of bricks. This thing weighed three tons. And it was in a track, and it usually had a little depression where it would actually drop down. So you would have to lift this. This is something a great number of men would strain and squeal and squall to have to move. And one of the passages in the book of Mark, it actually says that the stone was cast away. When Jesus rose up from the grave, it was so monumentous. This three-ton stone wasn't just gently rolled. It was, it was tossed like a pebble. It was thrown out of the way. And Christ rose from the dead. We as Christians believe Christ bodily rose from the dead. We're not just talking about His Spirit exiting His body, but Jesus literally being dead and then not being dead. His body alive again. And so I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to read a passage. I'm going to make a few comments before we ever get to the notes in there. Uh, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 19. It's on page 961 in those chair Bibles. 1 Corinthians was written to a group of believers by the Apostle Paul. So Paul um, was very young. When Christ was crucified, he was not probably even in the country when this happened. He did not trust Christ initially. As a matter of fact, he was a persecutor of Christians. He did not believe the story of the resurrection or that Christ had died for sins. And the resurrected Jesus 
literally appeared to him. He saw the physical Christ as he was walking down a road. And it was so such a glorious sight, it blinded him for three days until God healed him. And he became one of the greatest preachers of the Gospel that has ever lived on this earth. He wrote a letter back to the Corinthians to help them understand some things. So 20 years after that morning when Jesus Christ rose up from the dead, this is what Paul wrote in reflection. And I'm going to stop a few times and just, just highlight a few things as we go through this text. And we're going to take both those texts and some other texts from Scripture and kind of sum things up about what is the resurrection. What's the point? So 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So first thing, the gospel, we, talk, we use that word all the time around here. I want to make sure we explain what it is. The good news of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus saves. Jesus lived a perfect life, died death for our sins, and then rose up from the dead. And what Paul is arguing here, what he's setting up, is everybody, we get that Jesus died. There's few souls in America that would not know that. And would probably not say, yeah, that probably happened. But Paul's going to argue here over the next few verses that Christ's resurrection is essential to Christ's death being of any point. So continue with me in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So he says, here's the thing. This is what the whole Bible's about. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And the reason the buried was so important is that, that he was truly dead. He, he wasn't ill. He wasn't beat up. He was dead. He was executed by soldiers. And then here's what he says. This is about the resurrection. So the whole gospel, we got it right there. Now listen to how much he extrapolates on the last piece of it. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, that's the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. In other words, he, he was the last person to see Christ resurrected. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was that is with me. Whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you have believed. So here's the gospel. Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. He appeared to over 500. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. But verse 12, he goes from facts to the significance of those facts. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So there'd been a, a heresy crop up, a, a false belief crop up in the Corinthian church that there's no resurrection from the dead. And, and Greeks in that day, they, they thought the physical things 
were kind of less than. Everything was about spirit and knowledge and kind of, kind of a, a very mystical feel to their religion. And that was going on in culture at the time. And so some people in the Corinthian church were apparently saying that our bodies won't be raised at the end of time when Christ returns. And Paul says, wait a minute. If you're saying there's no resurrection, that doesn't make sense because Jesus was resurrected. Let's, let's continue on. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're going to come back to talk about what that means. But he's basically saying, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, everything I say is a waste of time. Verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now, catch this. Paul, Paul's throwing a little logic at us. He says, if Christ wasn't raised, you still have your sins because he didn't forgive you. But it wasn't Christ's resurrection that paid for sins. It was his death. We're going to talk about why this becomes important here in just a little bit. But, but catch what Paul's arguing. He says if Jesus wasn't raised, his death didn't matter. Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have, excuse me, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. So here's his final comment on this. If all we have is this life. There's no resurrection from the dead. He basically says, why are you bothering? It would be much easier to sleep in on Sundays. Sorry, there's a dog walking around out there. Totally lost my thought. One of those days. All right. Let's get back to that scripture. If, if in Christ we have in hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. What Paul is saying is, is if this is all we've got, if it's just this spiritual life, and because of Jesus and, and what He did, we get to be more spiritual of a people than we were before. I say, this is a waste of your time. Because particularly Christians of this day, and for the most part today, except in America, Christians are the outcast. Christians don't get together in nice buildings and comfortable chairs. They gather in apartments and they don't sing out loud so their neighbors won't know they're there. And Christ and Paul is saying that, that if this is all you got in Jesus, is threat of arrest and death and possibly losing your job, being cast out of society, if that's all we've got, if that's what this is about, and there's no resurrection, guys, let's, let's get a new hobby. It's time for season tickets to the Titans because this is a waste of time. So here's what I want to do. I want us to go through four reasons that the resurrection is important. And I want us to think there with Paul 
about how important Christ's resurrection is, not just for the future, but even for our past, for our sins that have been committed and that we believe were by, forgiven by Christ. So let me give you a thesis, a, a main idea here. This is where I'm headed. This is what I'm going to argue today. Jesus' resurrection is the validation. It's the proof of who Jesus is and everything that He has done. Jesus' resurrection is the validation or proof of who He is and everything He has done. As Christians, we believe that God the Son, one of the persons of the Trinity, came to earth, was born by a virgin. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. All the lights are going up. This is the whole point. He was born into this earth as a human. A real deal human. Not, not part human. Not look human. He was human. He ate. He drank. As a baby, he cried. And I'm sure he spit up all over Mary and Joseph. Much to their chagrin. I'm sure he kept them up at night. I'm sure he cried when he teethed. He was a real deal human. And still fully God. He lived a perfect life. He proclaimed He was going to die for sins. He proclaimed Himself to be God the Son. He proclaimed Himself to be the King of Jews. He proclaimed Himself to be the promise of everything that was given in the Old Testament. And He said, the way it's all going to work is I'm going to die. And three days later, I'll be rose again. All of that, all that He did hinges on the resurrection. So we're going to talk about this in four specific ways. The first one that you'll see there in your notes. Jesus' resurrection proves who He is and what He has done. It proves simply His very identity and His words and His acts. Um, so before I get into this too deep here, um, you can go ahead and fill in the blanks, but Jesus' resurrection proves who He is and what He has done. Let me say something because I don't want to assume that everyone here is a Christian. I don't want to assume that everyone here is even confident that the resurrection happened. And so I, I want to go back and give you four reasons I believe the resurrection to be true. Part of these are from Scripture. Part of them are just from um, history and logic. But I want to say this to you. Um, if you are struggling with the claims of Christ, and maybe some of you, I know we have some who've come for a long time, you've struggled with the claims of Christ for a long time. Is this real or is this not? So let me ask you, before I give these proofs or these defenses or, or these evidences of a risen Christ, what is your standard you are seeking before you trust that the resurrection is true? What is the standard? A lot of people say it, it has to be indubitable. It, it can't be doubted. I have to be totally 100%. There can be no doubt about that. But let me challenge your thinking in that for a minute. And, and maybe this is something I, I want you to think about, not just this morning, but for a little while. You see, even our courts have a standard. And it's not undoubtable. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. So we have many police officers, some retired, and I'm, I'm sure Lieutenant Castleman out there had his fair share of times he testified in court. And I'm sure that there were people who tried to bring question about whatever he saw and recorded. But the standard for the jury is beyond reasonable doubt. So 
Could the lawyer have said, well, this person couldn't possibly have been guilty of this crime because they're an alien and they weren't even here? Well, yes, but would anyone here believe that? That's not a reasonable doubt. We're hearing, I don't know if y'all have seen this in the movie. I hope y'all have seen this because it's really funny. There's a guy right now who has built himself a rocket, homemade rocket. This is not Elon Musk, okay? This dude in his garage built himself a rocket, which he plans to fly. And strangely enough, the government said he couldn't do that because they didn't want their land blown up. He tried to do it on a national park. Um, he's going to fly a rocket about one mile into the air with him on it to prove the earth is flat. Dead serious? He's got a whole organization who has sponsored him to build this $20,000 rocket. By the way, most engines for a rocket cost over $20,000 alone. Built a $20,000 rocket, going to fly a mile in the air, and he is confident he'll be able to prove the earth is flat. Now, there's a couple problems with this logic. One, Every airliner flies way higher than that. They fly thirty to 40,000 feet instead of 5,000 feet he hopes to get to. Two, there are airplanes that can fly much higher than that. I know we've, we've got some Air Force folks here. I'm sure you've been up high enough to see the curve of the earth. Um, some of you who may have flown in a private jet, you can see the curve of the earth from there. It's way higher than this guy's going to get. But even for the rest of you who weren't in the military, haven't ever flown in a private jet, there's pretty reasonable proof that the earth is round, Right? We can fly around it. I mean, this this is not rocket science, to pun this guy. His doubt is not reasonable. There's plenty of evidence. He just won't accept it. So I want to give you some evidences today, and I, I don't think they're conclusive. I don't think they're everything that's out there. Let me encourage you to look down in the resources. There's a book called Case for Christ. It goes into a whole lot more depth than I ever could. But let me just give you four evidences and challenge you. What is your standard? And when will you make that jump to trust what's there? First evidence. Jesus' tomb was guarded by a Roman regiment who later had to be paid off to describe what had happened. Uh, Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66 describe this. There was a Roman guard placed by Pilate, we have recorded in multiple sources, that was guarding his tomb because people thought the disciples would come steal his body because he claimed he would raise from the dead. These were professional soldiers. Now, I've known a few professional soldiers in my day. They take their job very seriously for the most part. And they don't tend to be um, easily dissuade when they're told, don't let anyone in there. They tend to keep people in there, right? There was a Roman seal placed over Christ's tomb. That rock that was placed over there, it was basically rope melted into wax with a stamp of somebody. We're not exactly sure who, but it was somebody apparently who had authority to say, don't go in there. Or by my power, I will take care of you. Jesus' body was gone. A bunch of ladies found it. And, and last I checked, three ladies doesn't win against a regiment of soldiers. What happened? Again, we could come up with a lot of things, but the most reasonable 
When we have accounts that the stone was cast away, the soldiers were knocked out, that's probably what happened. Other explanations are simply not as reasonable. The explanation they were told by, by their leader and paid to give was that the disciples came overpowered us and took his body. These were a bunch of fishermen, not soldiers. They had a sword. And by the way, when Peter tried to use it, he missed the guy's head. He hit an ear. So he's not even that good with it. He can't aim. They didn't win. Evidence number two. The number of witnesses. We read this passage that Paul starts listing some folks. There are other folks listed. We have Mary Magdalene, um, several others that were listed in that original passage. These weren't just some weird guys in an RV in Nevada desert. These were people that Paul lists out who had credentials and who people could go and talk to. If I'm going to make something up, if I'm going to make up a story, I'm going to give evidence that I know you can't check. So for instance, when your kiddo, your little one, when they're preschool, their lies are horrible, right? I mean, that, they can't get away with anything. Because you ask them what happened and they're going to... One of mine said it was their cousin who did it in, in Texas. Like, it doesn't work, right? If you blame your cousin in Texas when you're in Tennessee for something that happened last night, like, ain't going to happen. I can check that one. Yep, you still there? Yep, good. That wasn't it. Paul names names. So does Peter. So does Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, several other places. They name names. Go talk to this guy. And by the way, it wasn't the religious leader, some professional that you think might be the guy who you want. Oh, well, if they say it. No, it was Mary Magdalene. She was a prostitute possessed by demons. It's not a created story. This, this doesn't like line up if you're trying to make something up. And you certainly don't name names of people who you could talk to. Third thing, the consistency of the testimony and sources. There were multiple authors. There were early evidence. Again, 1 Corinthians was actually probably written before Luke that we read earlier. This is 20 years after the fact. This is very, very early on evidence of what has happened. And the stories are the same. Christ rose bodily from the dead. Fourth thing, and this is the last one. And to me, this is the most compelling. The night before Christ is crucified, You have 11 disciples. Judas has betrayed him. And they are panic-stricken chickens. And they, they are terrified. They literally run off. A little girl, little girl in that, that language was 12 years old or under. Little girl asked Peter, hey, weren't you with him? And he cusses at her for it. I mean, this, this guy is, is a coward. What happened 40 days after this fact that would get the same guy to stand up in front of thousands of people, the same people who crucified Christ, and say, he's risen from the dead. And you should all follow him. And as a matter of fact, he blames them for crucifying Jesus. What happened in there? I mean, people don't change like that. Something significant happened to change Peter. 
And it wasn't just Peter. It was Peter, James, John. All the disciples. Every one of them except John was executed and he was exiled on a rock. We, we use the word island. That's very generous. On a rock in the middle of the Mediterranean where he died alone. Peter, same guy, scared of a little girl who thought he might have known Jesus, is hung, tradition tells us, on a cross upside down and dies a few days later. People don't die for something they don't believe in. So what I want to do is go back and argue for my point just a minute that I gave you before. Jesus' resurrection proves who He is and what He has done. Dizzy Dean... I, okay, baseball illustration, Joe. I'm getting better. Sports. Dizzy Dean is a baseball player. And then later, Muhammad Ali, and I actually knew this when he was a boxer, once touted, it ain't bragging if you can do it. And that's basically what the resurrection does. It's not blasphemy to call yourself God if you're God. It's not blasphemy to say, I can forgive sins if you can actually forgive sins. If you claim to be God made human, that may be a little difficult to prove because you're a human. And Jesus did many miracles, but obviously that didn't convince everyone. If you say you'll forgive sins eternally, that's hard to fathom because I can't see it or touch it. However, if you say you will die and then raise from the grave, I can check that. Remember when Jesus forgave a man's sins? He, he was lowered through the roof by his four friends. Remember the story? He, he was paralyzed. They carried him in and they can't get to Jesus. So they literally tear the roof off, lower him down. And Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> you can't do that. You can't forgive sins. And Jesus does the equivalent of says, really? Stand up and walk. And he does. He proved he could forgive sins by doing another miracle that could be verified. And so when we talk about the greatest miracle of all, his death for our sin, what proves it is that he got up out of that grave. The reason you can trust that Jesus said he was God is he was dead and then decided to not be dead. And he walked out of the grave. The reason you can believe Christ died for your sins is He said, I'm dying for your sins, then did it, and then got up out of that grave. This is what Paul was saying here. That, that it's not valid to believe our sins are forgiven if Christ is not raised. This is the proof. This is the evidence for everything Jesus did and everything Jesus said. Only God could have the power to decide not to be dead anymore. Anyone else would just be dead. But Jesus rose. Jesus claimed His death was the penalty for our sin. And you can trust that fact because He rose from the dead. Second point. Jesus' resurrection is a promise of our future resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is a promise of our future resurrection. I'm not going to spend much time here because this is what Joe's going to be talking about next week. All right, So y'all just pause that thought. Know it's true. This is what 
Paul is arguing here in this text. If we don't believe in a future resurrection, we don't believe in Jesus' resurrection. But if Jesus rose from the dead and said, I'm going to raise you from the dead, He's already done the hard part. He raised Himself. You can count that Christ will raise you from the dead. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. Our broken bodies, our moms who have cancer, our failing systems, the pain that you feel when you're missing church because you can't come. All that's going to change. All that's going to change. Jesus Christ said, I will raise you from the dead. The Bible describes Jesus as the first fruits. He is the very first harvest. Some of y'all are gardeners in here like me. You remember that first tomato you get? Like the first? Oh, there's just something about that, right? You've been waiting a year since you've been eating those nasty canned or store-bought tomato facsimiles. And you get that first juicy slicer. That's what Jesus is. He is the first fruit. He is the first one of many to come. Jesus' resurrection is a promise of our future resurrection. Third thing, Jesus' resurrection defeated Satan. Jesus' resurrection defeated Satan. Satan now stands as a convicted but not yet executed criminal. All the way back to the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve, when sin entered the world, God gave this promise that someday there would be someone who would come to crush the head of the serpent. So remember back to the story of Adam and Eve. They're tempted by a serpent. Who talks? Weird. We found out later this is Satan either, either taking the form of a serpent, possessing a serpent, who knows. And God says, I'm sending one of your children to you. I'm going to send one of them. And they are going to stomp the head of that old snake. They're going to destroy the very first enemy in all history. But then he, he adds this note. He will stomp the head of the snake and then he, the snake, will bruise his heel. I don't know about you, but I'm not too big on snakes. I prefer not stomping snakes. I weed eat them, you know, just gas. I've seen them fly. They, they fly really fun when you hit them. Um, but nobody likes snakes. And I don't know of too many people who are going to stomp on the head of a snake. That's, that's not my, you know, I'm at least going for a shovel. And think back to their day. They're in the garden. They're naked still. No shoes. You stomp the head of a snake and he bites you in the heel. It's not going to go well for you. This is the first prophecy that Christ would die. But the beauty of the resurrection is He did not stay dead. He stomped the head of the snake and He proved that Satan is dead. Remember the song we sang earlier? He rose with the keys of death and hell in His hands. Jesus defeated Satan. Now, Satan's still around. The Bible talks about he's, he's like a roaring lion running around the earth seeking whom he might devour. But he is not the winner. The fight's already been won. The Bible talks about Christ's return. And it says when the devil mounts all the armies of the earth, he can conjure up. You know how Jesus wins that fight? He talks. 
It's like a sword coming out from his mouth. It just instantly demolished. That, the Battle of Armageddon, you know, we've, we've got how, who knows how many movies. You know how long the Battle of Armageddon is in Scripture? About half a verse. It says, and Jesus landed, they were dead. Like, Satan has been defeated. And so let me tell you, Christian, don't let him defeat you. Sin and death and Satan are defeated enemies. They may still be running around, but it is truly like a criminal who has received the death sentence and is waiting on death row for his execution. They may be obnoxious, but they have no power over you. In Christ Jesus, they have no power over you because Jesus is that snake crusher. Fourth and last, Jesus' resurrection killed death. Now, and be careful. Listen to what I'm saying. And this is this is a little bit odd way of saying it. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 15 says this. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So just later on, I'm not going to get into that because Joe's probably going to be talking about that later. But death is dead. That's how the Bible describes it. But just in the same way as Satan is still roaring about waiting for his execution, death is waiting for its destruction when there will never be be another death is dead death is not the end anymore today we see death as an end it's the stopping but death is bigger than buying some pine pajamas we see the first stage of our death but remember what god prophesied or god cursed of adam and eve he said on the day you eat of it you shall surely die did their bodies die on the day they ate of the fruit no. Death is much, much bigger than what we see. Death is bigger than our bodies expiring. The curse of Adam that came from his sin in that garden was eternal death and separation from God in hell for all eternity. And we're con so consumed with our bodies and what we can see that we forget the full course of death. You see, when Christ rose, death lost its grip on eternal souls the gates of hell were kicked closed and the gates of heaven were flung open christ rose from the dead defeating death he won he beat it he beat the enemy and the vestiges of death like our blood pumpers stopping that may still be around for this day but death is dead and we are waiting its destruction in the same way we wait the execution of satan so let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, some of you even this week have lost relatives and your hearts are hurting. Some of you are thinking back and maybe it's your first Thanksgiving without a loved one. Let me encourage your heart. Death is dead. This is temporary. And it may hurt more than I can ever imagine, sisters, but hold the course. Death has been defeated. And it's going to be destroyed by a risen, alive Savior. Death is death. So what? How do we leave here today? First, let me say this to you. If you are not a believer yet, maybe you have been just hovering or maybe everyone thinks you are and you, you just... There's been that quiet reserve in your soul. One, thank you for being here today. 
but two, trust Christ. Maybe this is a day. And maybe if you're still not there, actually pursue. Pursue the truth. Not no way to just prove it wrong, but seek what is actually true. If He did raise from the dead, you're dealing with God the Son, not just a good teacher or guru. He died and rose, proving His death is a valid payment for your sin. So let me beg of you, brother, sister, friend, trust Christ. Trust Christ. I would love nothing better than talk with you about that today or the person who brought you the same. If you are a believer in Jesus, we need to learn to live like Jesus actually rose from the dead. You know those moments when we are struggling with sin? They're usually when we're quiet and alone. No one's watching. Let me tell you, Christ is risen from the dead. He's alive. There is someone with you there to carry you out of the pit, to carry you through whatever it is you're fighting. And I don't mean to say that to make it easy or, or some you know, nice pat on them. I am saying Christ is victorious. And He can guide you all the way out of your sin. So believer, fight like Jesus is alive. And don't sin like He's not. Finally, if you're ready to join our church, do so. The Bible in Revelation 1, 12-20 says, you know where Jesus is at now? It says He's walking among His churches. So come. If you've met the requirements for membership, you've been waiting, maybe today's the day. We would love to have you join us. We're going to sing one last song. It's a victory song. We are going to praise the alive, risen Jesus Christ. So the greatest thing I could tell you today is do just that. Praise Him like He's alive because He is. Let's pray. Lord, as the song said, You are risen from the dead, trampling over death by Your death. But Lord, also Your resurrection that proves everything to be true. Lord, You have started making all the bad, evil things come untrue by making death come undead. You are alive, Jesus. Not in some ooey, mystical way, but You are alive as we use that word every day. God, I pray for every... Pray for every one of our hearts. Lord, I pray for those here who may not know You, that You would make their heart alive so they will be raised with You again to eternal life. And Lord, I pray for all of our hearts here who do know You, that You would draw us closer. And may we live before Your face, Jesus. It's because You have finished the work that we can pray and that we can sing. Amen.